Welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show, another busy week, with my co-host, Frank Washcook. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. What's going on this week in your life, mate? Well, a lot going on. We've got a, a lot going on with Twitter, if you if you haven't heard. We've got uh, some new pay disclosure laws in New York State and uh, midterms coming soon. Yeah, and we'll talk about all those as well as the next 15's acquisition, well, dead in the water acquisition, actually, of MNC Saatchi and review our 40 under 40. No no marathon for you this year? No New York marathon? No, not for me, sadly, this year. i got a few other things going on, but I'll be a spectator this so year. So will I, yeah. Cheering some people on. and past the uh, end of my street. Maybe I'll make a creative sign. In fact, I handed you a bottle of water during last year's That's race. Right. Do you That's remember? Right. Yeah. yeah, it was very um, helpful. And our guest this week is Curtis Sparrow, who is the most purposeful agency professional from our Purpose Awards recently given out in Chicago. Curtis, congratulations and welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm still on a high from that. Uh, that was one of the best moments. And I actually thought it would happen because you did not make eye contact with me during that entire award ceremony until that one moment. And that to me was the tell. Oh my, I've got a tell. That's bad. That is bad. Let's agree never to play poker first. <laughs> <laughs> you got a fantastic reaction. You must have felt amazing. Everyone stood up. Round of applause. It wasn't a usual awards round of applause. It was a real genuine well done, wasn't it? It was really, really affirming. And it was one of the better moments, I think, that I'll hold as I'm dying and coming off this mortal coil. I'll think about that one moment. My favorite was one of the nominees came up and she said, that should have been mine. And I thought that was the most sincere thing that anyone has ever said. <laughs> and I, I said, I appreciate you. Well, I, I, most people just think that. They don't actually say it. So it's quite refreshing for people to actually say it, isn't it? But, I did but, not include the curse word she uttered before she you know, said it should have <laughs> been hers but it, it was funny nonetheless <laughs> so you're the principal and co-founder of Bospar, the politely pushy pr agency trademarked so, so yeah tell us all about that what does that mean well frequently i would be on programs like this and someone would say politely pushy oh i should take that and then she hulk which i know you're a huge fan of had this whole ip episode where someone takes the ip of she hulk and i thought you know what this is the great time to make sure that we protect our intellectual property and for any agency heads who are listening to this right now i encourage you go do the necessary paperwork and take it so that you can own it because not enough agencies are owning their ip like they should Good advice. And you've also trademarked Bospar, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. For the same reason. Yeah, we see that. We get a lot of people sort of passing themselves off as campaign or PR week or some Tesk. of our brands or some of our um, activations. So, yeah, it's good advice. It certainly is. Now, you had a great year in 2021. You grew from 6.5 million to 12.4 million, so almost doubling. And you, I think you're on track to be 18 million in 2022. So what's the secret to this great success? You, you doubled last year and you're putting on 50% on top of a strong year this year. Uh, is that the cue for me to say being politely pushy? This is like an open goal for you, as we say in the <laughs> soccer world. <laughs> you know, I want to say that it's investing in journalists. I was really happy that Eric Chimmy and Brett Larson came on board with Bospar. Uh, you know, they 
join journalists uh, like Lisa Morgan, who's worked at Information Week and Paula Bernier. And I think having those people who really understand what's going on in newsrooms, big and small, is really critical. And when I started my PR career, you know, one of the things I noticed is most people had never talked to a journalist, had never been inside a newsroom. And so that always seemed to me to be the delta that needed to be crossed. Yeah, and of course, you started your career as in one of those newsrooms, didn't you? So you had that uh, experience when you came into PR yourself. Absolutely. You know, nothing makes you more creative than being a weekend overnight editor in Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> that is, that's very true. I'm sure you've got some brilliant stories. That actually reminds me, we did a story, uh, Diana Bradley, PR Week Diana, as we know her around here. She did a column last week about what pisses journalists off about PR people. Um, I don't know if you saw it. I did and, see it. And, okay, look, I know journalists can be annoying as well, and we could get into what annoys PR people about journalists. But Ghosting. Yeah, well, that would never happen with a PR Week journalist, would it, Frank? <laughs> <laughs> no, never. Has I <laughs> never. Contain my history laughter. Of PR Week's newsroom. Has anyone ever ghosted? But it was it was interesting. What did you make of that of Diana's feedback there? And it was was it fair? Oh, it was absolutely fair. I think I could have added a whole bunch of other things. So could we, by the way. But anyway, we were trying to, we were trying not to be totally negative. I mean, you could do a whole <laughs> series, really, about this month, next month, and the other month. And I, I think that a lot of times PR people don't think about what journalists are having to go through. I think some of the asks that PR people are making of journalists are pretty hard. And I think it also reflects not just what PR people are facing, but what marketing people are facing. I saw this marketing deck where it had all the tick marks of every marketing plan ever complete with the New York Times activation which I was like no a New York Times Square activation I've never seen a Times Square activation and yet I think that a lot of times these people don't know what a newsroom is like or how editors work and that creates these kind of crazy moments that drive everyone insane yeah the the grumbles do go around the newsroom don't they Frank and um what would your advice be to someone pitching PR Week, you know, from your point of view, as you get pitched hundreds of things every day? Well, we like to be first on things and we need to be telling people, uh, our readers, things that they don't know. So I would keep that in mind as you're pitching <laughs> us. And um, It's called news. Yeah, right? and keep it informal, you know. If we um, please don't send us these uh, robotized pitches with a blank where our name should be or anything like that. Yeah, we'd like news, not olds. I think, uh, Curtis, I think you're right. The, the, the relationship bit has kind of gone away a bit. And that's partly because I guess there aren't as many journalists now. They're much busier. It's, it's, and it's difficult, more difficult to get to know them. But you can, still, you can still build relationships, can't you? And once you have a good relationship, the email, when it drops in the inbox, is more likely to get read, isn't it? You know, I would say that not enough people are spending the time getting to know journalists in places that are, you know, easy places like a journalist convention. I just did the National Lesbian Gay Journalist Convention where I got to meet hundreds of journalists of all kinds, get very drunk with them and perhaps say some things that weren't too clever or smart. I that might have sound like you at all. No, Curtis. no apologies the next day. No, <laughs> no, not at all. But I definitely think that, you know, every PR person should be a cheerleader of certain journalists and make sure that they're adding more value than just trying to pitch them all the time. And to your point about news, one of the things that I tell everyone in my agency 
is your first sentence better have the word new in it. And if it doesn't, you better really think about why. And I wanted to ask you, do words like as, if, or when, or while in a first sentence of a pitch drive you nuts? Because they drive me nuts. Look, I, I think you can tell how interested you are by the subject line a lot of the time. Uh, and obviously sometimes you have to go beyond that, but the best ones are direct and to the point and don't lead with the broad context, just the, the good stuff up front. Yeah, don't bury the lead yeah. for sure. Amen. Um, you've got, we haven't got time to read loads of long emails to find the story in there. So yeah, have it right up front. Yeah. And I think, uh, in terms of trends, Curtis, I mean, we, I think we see more agencies, saying, we will send you this embargoed press release if you agree not to break the embargo. And you're like, well, we don't break embargoes, so we're not going to agree to that, right? Is that, that seems a new thing over the past couple of years. I would say that it depends on the news. I would say embargoes are really popular when you have material news about funding, fundraising, that sort of thing, something that it touches on M&A. I think on other things, though, embargoes really hurt your cause. And so I think you have to pick the right one. And certain reporters chafe at an embargo anyway. They're like, no, I am a feature story all by myself. You know, you just give me something. I'm the kingmaker, not you. That's a bigger thing in the tech world, isn't it? In the tech journalism world. I remember that, that um, you know, tech crunch war on embargoes years ago where they just said, you know, we're not going to do them. And if it means we don't get the story, we don't get the story. Yeah, I would say there's a lot of pushback on embargoes, and I respect the pushback. And it's just a matter of telling your clients, hey, this is what the news story is going to be like. One of the reasons people do embargoes is the hopeful idea that all these reporters will cover your news at once. And it feels like a big, huge day for you. It's a party for you. And that's why they do it to, you know, for so many reasons. They also want to prevent scoops and other people saying, well, I'm not going to cover it because Frank covered it. So there are tactical considerations, but there's also things about the relationship itself. And so people need to calibrate their responses accordingly. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about what's driven. You've done some high profile things the last year. You've very purposeful, you know, tech and purpose seem to be tech core tenets of Bospar. Um, tell us about some of the things you've done. You've the stepping in to help the pride in San Francisco, um, offering to pay for staffers to relocate. Some might say they're a little stunty, but actually there's a serious point behind all those things. And I think you're genuine about it. Well, I think the thing is, for those listening especially, is that you could kind of tell where my politics lie just by the tenor of my voice. And so I've never been able to pass, so to speak. And so what you see or what you hear is what you get. And when it comes to my politics, that's pretty obvious, too. And so birds of a feather flock together. So when the situation arose in Texas to take a stand, it was no question of if, it was a question of what. And we were actually inspired to do something because we listened to NPR and they talked about the dearth of companies taking a stand. And when we heard that there weren't many companies taking a stand, we knew that was an opportunity for us. And I think that's a real part of bravery. If we're going to think about, you know, Grecian classics and what is bravery, that is a real moment. And I think right 
right now we're at a moment where there are times to be really brave. And there's a time where it's just so many people are speaking out about the issue that you're not really helping if you're, you're trying to do it. And with pride, that was something that I really felt because obviously I care about the issue. But when they came to us, they only had $100,000 in their coffer. And this is for the largest pride in the country. And by the time, you know, our four-month trial with them was done, they had nearly $2 million. And it was all because of the PR efforts we did about riding a ship that was dealing with some very politically interesting warfare and also making sure that people understood the true value of what pride is, which matters so much more nowadays because of this inflection point our country's in. And I think with the midterm elections, I think pride and ESG is going to be more important than ever before. Yeah, we'll come on to that later because I think you're right there and um, it's a big topic. So, uh, all right. So what, what, what else are you seeing in terms of trends? Is there anything in the tech world that we should be aware of that's uh, changing? Tech seems to be, the tech economy seems to be having its downturn a bit earlier than other parts of the economy, to say the least. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I think tech responds to things faster than anyone, anything else, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. And so a lot of the things that people are talking about, we were actually seeing in June, and that led us to do research about what uh, marketers felt. We talked to over 600 marketers, and marketers told us that they thought we were already in a recession. They said that they were feeling the effects now, and they were having to make those critical budgetary decisions. And most most of them said the big concern was going dark and how to make sure that they keep their brands relevant. And that has only accelerated as we've seen layoffs at some of the biggest uh, companies and agencies out there. And so brands are looking at how to do more with less. And also it's about the message itself, about what uh, will help from a PR point of view. And so things about thought leadership, which really kind of sound good and definitely are award winning, are not nearly as important as why someone's product is going to help you save money or make better choices. And just like 2008, we're seeing people really invest in analytics and data and security and the things that really stretch investments and empower people to make smarter decisions. Yeah. And the good thing for PR is that the clients need help good times and bad. And uh, it does seem the tech's ahead of the game. I wrote a piece about this. You know, we don't want to talk ourselves into a recession. And there are some areas of the economy that are still doing very well. Some are booming. But uh, and we have to be realistic that there are going to be economic headwinds, but we, we mustn't sort of talk ourselves into it. Curtis, we'll chat more later in the podcast about issues, but uh, congrats on the award. It was great night in Chicago, and congrats on the continued success of Bospa. Sounds like things are going well. Frank, you can't get away from this story, so we're going to cover it again. Elon Musk, uh, he took over at Twitter at the weekend. He was there all weekend. He's made some big moves, and everyone's talking about it, basically, especially on Twitter, but not just on Twitter. And it seems like those employees who have not been let go have been there all weekend, too. So, yeah. uh, so yeah, um, this might be outdated by the time that the podcast airs, but here's the latest on the takeover. So Musk today has said that banned accounts are not going to be back uh, on the platform ASAP because they're setting up a process by which they review them. And that could take weeks. Of course, the, you know, the monster in the room here is, is the former president's account and whether or not he will be back on there. He swears he's sticking on Truth Social. I think we all find that a bit hard to believe. We'll see what happens. Um, 
Elon has also said to be working on a high-risk video project that would let video creators charge Twitter users to access content. And uh, there's also been some financial internal communications about worried staffers who were being laid off, uh, whether they'd be paid for newly vested shares. He says that's going to happen as of November 4th. Now, I think there's a few things that are really important to our audience, and that's um, the relationship that Twitter has with advertisers. And that's not in great shape because you have uh, media buying agencies at Havas and an interpublic group uh, advising clients to, to take a break and you know see how this shakes out before... Uh, advertising on Twitter again due to the amount of hate speech. And on that note, Montclair State University did a report showing that hate speech has increased dramatically on the platform. Uh, This is something LeBron James has been talking about on the platform since Musk bought it. So uh, it's not just anecdotally looking in there and being like, is this more toxic than usual? It's uh, the numbers back that up as well. And General Motors is taking a pause too, I think, amongst the big clients. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You didn't even mention the blue tick thing. You know, are they, are we going to are we going to pay for uh, our blue tick? Well, thing? that's that's getting a lot of attention, but I don't think that's necessarily the biggest deal. I mean, that's not. I think if you run the numbers, that's not going to make the company a ton of money. It's going to make them some money, but not a ton of money. Some people's uh, egos may be in shambles. We'll see. <laughs> uh, two we things I did not mention that I want to follow up there is that In this relationship that this company has with advertisers, and advertising is a big part of their business model, but as a part of this, uh, the top marketing and advertising executives at the company were let go, uh, who are really the conduit with uh, advertisers. And people who spend a lot of money on that platform are probably not feeling that confident right now. Uh, about what is going to happen to those positions. Are they going to be filled? What the process is going to be like? And all of those things. So uh, interesting to see who gets put in those positions and if he names permanent CEO that will report up to him. Yeah, good points. And we don't really know about the comms team, do we? I mean, he famously didn't have a comms team at Tesla, or at least he said he didn't. Publicly, he does not, right. But... um, about the Twitter comms team, check in with us on that. We might have something for you soon. Okay. They do have a head of investor relations, so I think he's on his inner circle and approved list. Curtis, you are based in San Fran. I Cisco, can't believe you did that. I Cisco <laughs> in Cali. Oh, gosh, you're making my ears bleed. <laughs> um, what's, what's the word on the street around San Francisco about all this? And what's your take on Elon and Twitter? You know, I felt that. Elon really needed an internal PR person with him each step of the way, because while he kind of thinks he's being a swashbuckler, bringing a sink into the you know HQ of Twitter, a lot of people just thought it was tone deaf and that this was further proof that there was not going to be an elder statesman in the room. And, or woman. Or woman, yeah. And I, I think that the problem we have is that we're seeing his worst instincts being realized without anyone to push back. I took some small solace that he took back the tweet about Nancy Pelosi's husband. Seemed a bit unnecessary, that one, didn't it? To me, that seemed like a total moment where the 
advertising industry had their worst fears confirmed about him. And I think he's smart enough to know that that was a step too far because he didn't double down. He actually retreated. And if you've noticed, we've heard now a lot more about what Twitter is going to do about the future, about resurrecting Vine, as opposed to his views. And I'm hoping someone, maybe his mother, gave him the talk about, hey, Elon, no one wants to hear about your views about stuff. They want to hear about Twitter. Fix Twitter. And as long as he does that, I think it will be going eventually in the right direction. But I think right now we're we haven't seen the bottom of the advertising exodus. Yeah, that's an interesting point on Vine, because you could say that he Twitter had TikTok before TikTok came came around, didn't they? And then they and they kind of shuttered it. So actually, that might be one of his smarter strategies to try and revive that, although the, the ship has sailed a little bit. But people do still have concerns about TikTok as a platform, obviously, because of its Chinese uh, ownership or potential ownership and and, and data um, to, protection and privacy. But to talk about TikTok for a hot second, you know, the thing is, is that advertisers feel much better about TikTok because of all the regulations. They feel better about TikTok because it's stable. You know what you're going to get. And the problem with Mr. Musk is he's brought in this mercurial quality where we don't know what's going to happen next and we don't know if he's going to pipe off or something like that. And that's the thing that really has advertisers really skittish about this platform. And while he might win points with a small diminishing, uh, very unpocketed group of people, he is losing the, you know, the kind of reputation game with everyone else who he's been needing to win over for quite some time. Have, yeah. you, have you heard from clients, any of them saying that they would get off the platform if A happens or if B happens? There is a huge push for LinkedIn right now because whereas before with Twitter, there was this sense of, hey, this is a great place for you know conversations and tech that matter. The thought is that a lot of people are leaving or disenchanted by the sheer amount of hate speech they're seeing. And LinkedIn is considered a safe, stable environment. And I think, you know, LinkedIn is going to be one of the big winners. Just for full disclosure purposes, is LinkedIn a nope. client? LinkedIn okay. is not a client. We're not associated with Twitter, LinkedIn, or anyone else. I'm sure you'd be happy to talk to them. Uh, if you want to call me, call me. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, well, look, that one's going to run and run, isn't it? So we're, we're all going to be talking about it for a while. But it's uh, it's certainly an interesting story with lots of angles and layers. Frank, a week ago, we were uh, at the 40 Under 40 dinner in New York City, where we celebrate the next generation of PR leaders. Good evening and welcome, everyone, to the 2022 PR Week 40 Under 40 Awards. It's always a great night, isn't it? And it's great vibe in the room because it's very youthful by definition. It's very diverse. Everyone's celebrating because they all know they've won. But uh, what were your reflections and takes on it? I can safely say a good time was had by all. It was. There's uh, plenty of after-partying. Uh, so I've heard. Allegedly. Uh, so I've heard. I had an early night, but I, I've heard there was some after-partying. Uh, um, one thing you would note about this year's list is just the wide range of client work that these folks are doing. A few that have been highlighted in the feature about it. Igami's Danny Astoria, uh, working uh, to address bias and inclusion in marketing throughout his career. As a Puerto Rican, Astoria has long viewed issues of representation as critically important. At Egami Group, a story has been central to many of Procter & Gamble's campaigns that engaged with conversations around race. 
He now leads media relations for the company's My Black is Beautiful campaign. Congratulations, Danny. Eliza Baker uh, on PepsiCo's Multicultural Business and Equity Development Division. We have folks working with Pfizer to uh, better include vaccinations for communities of color. We have a lot of people doing a lot of important work, including uh, Joanna Herman, uh, who led Merck's communications response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine this February and worked to help guide the company's response. Before joining Merck, Herman's 15-year career in PR included four years as a director at Gage & McDonald, where she oversaw integrated communication support for Johnson & Johnson and a stint as external communications manager for WellCare Health Plus. So people working on some really important topics topics, some interesting topics, and, and really things that you might not have included in communications five years ago. Yeah, for sure. And if people who say you can't find diverse talent in PR, in the PR industry, just come and have a look at that group because it was a fantastic, diverse, talented, creative group of young PR pros who are the next generation. Curtis, what's your take on those sort of uh, discussions and lists? Right. You know, there's plenty of lists out there, but this one uh, really matters, I think. I always feel old when I look at this list because I think that's not me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to be in that list. And, you know, the thing is, is that I think PR Week has done a great job of highlighting the talent in the industry. I, of course, am partial to your pride in PR list. Yep. And so I... Are we doing year three next summer, next June? So... Breaking news. Breaking news. Yep. Okay, I'll be looking forward to that. I have a few ideas. Do you have some? Well, we've lots of ideas, so we can chat about those uh, at a later date. And, uh, but yeah, we're going in. We're going back for year three. But I think you know, PR Week has done a great job of highlighting talent. I think that you know, if I was to put a wish list of other you know people to highlight, I would love it if you guys did a deep dive into tech itself. I think that would be really interesting. You could even come to California <laughs> or even in San Francisco and uh, do something there. And I think, you know, highlighting other uh, communities of color would also be interesting. But, you know, I got to salute you guys for doing what you've done. I know that when people have made that list and have received that distinction, it has been transformative in how they see themselves and the industry. And that's one of the things I love about PR Week is how you really give our industry a sense of purpose to say the word, but also importance. And I I really want to thank you for that. Thank you, Curtis. We appreciate it. But yeah, we have our comms tech newsletter. Frank looks after that. It's called Dashboard. It's a daily comms tech play. So that's, that's in the tech space. We did... We did have a brand called The Hub, and the awards were the Hubbies, which I really enjoyed, and that they were out in San Francisco. So maybe you're right. Maybe we should come back. Come over. Uh, yeah. No, we, look, we love visiting California. Especially when it's a New York summer. That's that's yeah, a time when your that, armpits will be really grateful. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, it was a great um, evening. There'll be, there'll be a few um, sound bites from some of the honorees, actually, later in this podcast. So listen out for those. Frank, new regulations in New York City about pay transparency have come in and they're going to have implications for all employers actually so tell us what they are and what we're hearing from PR firms about it. Yeah basically most regional businesses are going to have to post a salary range or hourly wage uh, when they make a job posting public. Now there's a few interesting tidbits that came out of this story that our reporter Ewan Larkin did on it and um, you know Kim Sample who runs the PR council said that more than 70% of the members of her organization have hired external consultants to 
conduct pay audits. And another stat is, according to Davis and Gilbert's 10th annual PR industry report, 46% of the firms also undertook pay audits in the last year. And this is a big shakeout from uh, the great resignation and some salaries being higher than what they should be due to people demanding high raises. It's due to a lot of people switching jobs. Um, Another point about this is that this type of legislation is not exactly new. It's in California, it's in Colorado, Connecticut, and other states. Um, So firms with offices around the country are used to this and know what to do with it. This had been pushed back. Um, Businesses in New York City had been opposed to it going into effect in April when it was supposed to, and it just went into effect now. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that when we talk about transparency on this, one point that was brought up in this article was that a lot of staffers already know the salary range for their job or what it should be because they're on uh, various websites like Glassdoor that, that show them these things. So you can't hide it really even if you wanted to. Yeah, Curtis, you've had this in California for a while. What, um, what lessons do you think we should take from that? And you're a, you're a virtual agency, so you have staffers all over the country. So some of your staff as will be New York based, I'm sure. So we have, uh, I want to say a third of our staff is actually in New York. And so I would say that this is something that is one of those super well-intentioned laws to help the little guy. But I really, frankly, think it's kind of a lagging indicator. Most of our staff tells each other what they make no matter what anyway. And the problem that I think people should consider is that what happens is bigger firms kind of get a sense of the salary and makes and it makes it makes poaching much easier because they can say, hey, you know, we've seen your job postings. And so, you know, how about this? And, you know, I've seen this happen while the great resignation was happening where people would go after salary ranges and, you know, weaponize them. So I have to be the business owner in the room who's not excited about well-meaning legislation. I, I know that's so original, but at the same time, there's all these unintended consequences that come out of it. And the thing is, these sort of laws always in the end help the bigger guys. No matter how well-intentioned they are, the bigger guys come up with wiggle room and creatively use it for their own purposes. That's a, that's generational, isn't it? You know, a lot of your staffers telling each other what they make, right? I mean, that's something I think older generations really shy Boots away from. Never, We're never horrified by yeah. <laughs> I think it was probably a big conversation in the 40 under 40, probably during cocktails, right? Uh. <laughs> Yeah, interesting stuff. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what impact that makes. Yeah, that's a good good point, Chris. I hadn't really thought of that, but uh, I guess that's why you, you're the expert guest on the on the podcast this week. <laughs> Ta-da! Um, the bar is low. <laughs> <laughs> so Frank, this uh, deal with Next Fifteen and MNC Such it's finally dead in the water. It's been lingering most of the year, actually. So tell us what went on. Yeah, and it was a pretty resounding no from MNC Saatchi shareholders uh, about the takeover offer from Next Fifteen. It's the end of this saga that's been going on since January, like you said, but more than 89% of investors were opposed to the sale to Next15, 11% in favor. And a lot of that is because the board at MNC Saatchi didn't recommend the deal. So they're going to stay independent, MNC Saatchi is. And I know, I know you have mentioned that it was a little difficult to see uh, you know, that more creative firm and that network as a part of Next15. 
Yeah, although Next15 acquired Engine, which was a very well-known creative brand, especially in uh, the UK, so they've already acquired one. But if you're in a fancy advertising agency with Saatchi attached to the name, do you necessarily want to be owned by a PR group? Does that sort of a snobbery about, unfortunately? I'm not saying this is the case, but I'm just sort of positing things out there. I think that things have changed over the year, haven't they? MNC Saatchi was in a bad place and had had a few uh, troubles, and um, that was when the deal kind of arose. But now I think they're in a better place. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Did you have any views on that, Curtis? I was going to do my best, you know, Monty Python accent. We're not dead yet, but <laughs> I, I didn't think that'd go over very well. You know, I'm always a bigger fan of independence. I'm always a fan of, you know, smaller agencies. Having been in the belly of a big, huge organization that was not nimble. And so by and large, I was happy it fell apart. But I mean, Next15 is kind of, it's the best of both worlds in a way in that it's it's a tech specialist holding company with Mbooth, with... Um, Archetype. Archetype, yeah. And... Um, a lot of shops more on the marketing side. Yeah, but, and you must have bumped up against them competitively oh, yes. in, in, in the market out west. So it was a, it's not like WPP or Omnicom going in, is it? It's, uh, it, was, it was a bold play for mm. sure. And, um, you know, Tim Dyson leading that group. But, um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't look like, well, it, that, that deal's not going to happen. So, all right, let's finish by talking about the midterms because they're next week and – I can't think of more important ones, really, you know, in recent times. What what impact are they going to have, Frank, and both on ESG and, and on business generally, depending on the results, obviously? So I, there's going to be a lot of impacts depending on what happens. And I think at this point, you know, most people think the Republicans are going to take at least the House, if not the Senate, which will mean a divided federal government for the next two years. Let's focus on one thing here and what it might mean for ESG spending, which would be for companies and the agencies that work with them. It will be extremely under the microscope, uh, especially in states that have a Republican governor um, and especially from politicians who have made a name out of uh, attacking what they're calling woke businesses. And that that even extends up until organizations like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, not exactly like a bastion of anti-capitalist sentiment exactly, but, um, you know, it it just shows you the sort of distrust of, um, you know, know, not just the the big tech or not just big this or big that, but the, um, you know, any any big company out there, uh, regardless of sector with few exceptions. And again, you know, the elephant in the room with this is the Disney versus Ron DeSantis back and forth from a number of months ago um, that I think most people say Disney probably did not handle well. And so, you know, corporate America is looking at this and one thing on their mind for sure is ESG spending. A lot of big issues up for grabs in this election, of course, don't mean to minimize them, but I think for our readers, that's a big one. Yeah, Curtis is a principal at a purposeful agency, someone committed to that. What's your take on the midterms and and the likely outcomes? I am praying for an upset. (laughs) (laughs) I am hoping for an upset. I feel like we're in Weimar, Germany. And so the idea that we would 
bring the R's back has all sorts of concerns, but the ones that you outlined, Frank, you know, I don't really want to have a whole series of hearings on woke capitalism and the problems. And to me, this feels like fiddling while Rome burns, to use another historical metaphor. And I find that this is not the right discussion to even be having. But I think that when we look at how brands are perceived, younger generations are so focused on purpose. In fact, I was prepping for this uh, podcast by talking to a bunch of other agency people. And one woman told me, listen, you know, all these brands right now are future proofing, making sure that they're answering all the questions that younger uh consumers will have. And she said, for them, it's about purpose. It's about sourcing. It's about, you know, the origin of what you're selling and what that matters. And she said that she didn't think, you know, whatever, you know, Congress does is going to impact that sort of generational mandatory. They might be swapping how much salary they're getting, but they're also talking about what sort of, you know, origin is their product or their favorite brand having and why they're you know defending that. And so I think that, ESG might take on a rebel status and maybe that's a little rock and roll. I am wearing pleather pants <laughs> just to give an image here for all those people. But, you know, those I, listening, <laughs> not, not watching because it's not on video. Yes, yes. Too bad. There's going to be photos. But, you know, the thing is, is that ESG might, you know, become a rebel tool. But I definitely do wonder and worry about companies that really, you know, get their bread and butter. That's not a Bar thing. We are purposeful just because that's in our DNA. But most of our clients come for, you know, us for bread and butter technology and for category leadership and creation. So I'm going to be watching, to paraphrase, from a distance, Bette Midler. But I, I, I'm, I'm definitely worried about the state of the country. Yeah, I mean, look, the, it's the genie shouldn't go back in the bottle. It, purposeful business is not just the right thing to do. It's good business. It's, it's profitable business. It's dealing with social and global challenges. And um, the top Fortune 100 companies have all bought into this and the business roundtable, they've signed up to it. And um, But uh, it's definitely going to put pressure on it. And it's going to be, it's just going to be culture wars around it, isn't it? And you're right. It's, yeah. it's going to distract from a lot of other things. So I, I mean, not only that, I mean, you, you at this point and considering the the spending bill that just went through Congress recently. I mean, you'd have to be an idiot not to want to invest in green energy. I mean, it's just, it's where the market's going, it's where the money's going, and it's where, you know, future consumers are going to be. Yeah, and it was notable that President Biden was uh, making public some of the letters he'd received from Republican governors and senators asking for some of that money, even though they voted against it. So that's uh, that's always interesting. Listen, Curtis, always a pleasure to chat to you. Continued success to you. And thanks for being a guest on the PR Week. Thanks for having me. I, I'm hoping that you'll invite me again. We will. But you have to, you know, take your turn <laughs> to, you know, back to the old... 18 things <laughs> we have to spread the love on the slip off to San Francisco <laughs> uh, Frank thanks uh, always a pleasure yeah, thanks for having me on see you next week and don't forget our Hall of Fame event that's the last big event of the year in terms of uh, awards type activations that's on the 5th of December that's in New York City going to be a great uh, night as well actually that's a, a real feel good night and uh, we're going to launch our healthcare conference and awards uh, next week 
including uh, Health Influencer 30. So look out for that. But that's all we've got time for. We're going to close out this episode with audio from PR Week's 40 Under 40 ceremony, where PR Week reporter Brandon Dura spoke with a few of our honorees, and here's what they had to say. Could you give me your name and title, please? Julia Ehrenfeld, and I'm with Bank of America. I do a media relations executive. Erica Samadani. I'm an executive director of public relations at Mullen Lowe. Nipur Raghunath. I'm an SVP in the consumer practice at MSL. Jackie Colhagen, EVP of Digital at Zeno Group. Shannon Riggs, and I'm the managing partner of the Pacific Northwest Strategic Communications Unit. How does it feel to be a part of PR Week's 40 Under 40 class? It is a very humbling experience. I am in the presence of many outstanding current and former 40 Under 40 nominees. It's a huge honor, and I couldn't be more excited to be here representing my agency, but also reflecting on a career that has a lot of highs, but a lot of lows, you know, and just understanding what it takes to get here. Um, it means a lot. So I, I really appreciate the recognition. It is just such an incredible honor. It feels so nice to, to feel kind of uh, recognized for all the hard work that we've put in over the years and just really excited to see all of the other members of this year's class. It's an incredible accomplishment. Definitely uh, an esteemed group of people that I've looked at from a distance my whole career. So to be part of it is just a huge honor. Oh, I'm very excited to be here and truly honored to be among such an incredibly influential group. As I look around the room and you see the accomplishments, there's really nothing like it. You, you, you watch these lists, you admire the list, and you don't imagine being here. So it's very much an honor. How would you describe your generation of PR pros and communicators? I think we have all very differing views and approaches to what we do, which I think is also what uniquely makes our generation our generation, right? Uh, we have many different perspectives and backgrounds and uh, life lived experiences uh, and that we bring to the table. And we, and we express that through our work. Well, it's interesting because I'm on the, um, as they say, the older end of the millennium, you know, millennial spectrum. And we're kind of sandwiched between the old school, right, where we can still remember stuffing press kits or burning CDs for press kits and being tasked with creating a more modern approach to PR as well. So I feel like we've kind of taken the best of both worlds, really, where we have a strong foundation in media relations, but also the toolkit, right, of a modern PR person, which includes social media, influencers, experiential, a more full final approach to the work. I think this generation, more so than the past one, really brings a lot of our whole selves to work and brings a lot of our lived experiences with us. And I, I really believe that that makes us stronger communicators. As I look at this generation and just the amount of change that is constantly happening and how quickly change happens, this is a generation that not only has to, has to have the skill and the understanding, but has to be constantly looking for what's next and looking at where your audience is. How do we get to them? There's so much incredible talent that is out there, but it's absolutely a challenge to stay on top of it. And, it's, and I am inspired by my peers every day. I think we've had to learn to be incredibly nimble. There's been a lot of change in technology and culture in consumerism in the last few years. So I think um, our group has uh, a really unique skill set with being able to flex and pivot on a short notice. What does your generation ultimately bring to the table? I think we bring a unique sense of empathy. You know, we are coming up in an industry that is in tremendous change, right? Not only from a social justice perspective, but everywhere around us there is continuous media earthquakes, if you will. 
Um, and we've had to learn to adapt, but also create a sense of empathy and compassion for not only those around us, but also for our clients that are dealing with a lot of tough issues um, and for the people that they're talking to. You know, so it requires a tremendous sense of empathy and compassion. I think this generation brings just a new perspective and drive for innovation, a true partnership across different integrated partners um, and real understanding of how all those disciplines come together and a partnership with the C-suite. I think my generation is really fierce in our approach. I would say I'm so lucky to be around colleagues who share my same ambition and my same determination and commitment for our clients or in-house. I have a lot of friends at brands. So I think we're just really committed to the work. And like I said, we've learned to become really flexible. And I think part of that drive is that commitment to success. I think we bring a big enthusiasm for our roles, a real commitment to our workplace, and a real passion for the companies we represent. It's a great question. I would say my generation brings incredible talent but creativity this the there is no playbook anymore there are skills that we need that we know but you are rewriting the playbook every single day and this is a generation that's looking under every rock and addressing the challenges every industry no matter where you work there are a number of challenges before us so we're having to figure out how do we break through how do we stay relevant and how do we really bring the story to life, life, life.